0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for this interview. And today I'm speaking with Amanda Hendricks Komodo. Dr. Hendrix Komodo is an assistant professor of history at Montana State University and is the author of Imperial Zions Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and the Pacific, which just came out recently with the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Amanda. Good to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure.
0: Why don't we start, as we always do on the show, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Tell us about yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, and in particular, I'm interested in how you became interested in history.
1: Yeah, so I am, um, well, you've already said I'm an assistant professor in Montana, and I actually grew up um, near where I currently am working. So I grew up in southeast Idaho on the other side of Yellowstone from Montana State University. So it's about a four-hour drive. Um, And one of the things that is interesting about southeastern Idaho is although people often think of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as being primarily in Utah, um, it's actually a big presence in southeastern Idaho. The towns range from somewhere between like 60 and maybe 80 or 90% uh, Latter-day Saint. And I actually grew up as a non-Mormon in Idaho and it was a fairly uh, tense experience. Um, There are a lot of tensions between people in southeastern Idaho of different religious faiths. And like most kids who grew up in small towns, my town was probably a town of about 10,000 people, most famous for the World Potato Museum. Uh, if you are from out of state and you travel through Blackfoot, Idaho, where I'm from, they will give you, it used to be a free baked potato. It's now freeze dried hash browns, uh, but you will get a free potato product if you stop at the local potato museum. So like a lot of kids who grew up in towns like that, the thing I wanted to do most as a high school student was get out um, and I think like a lot of young teens or girls who are growing up in those places. I desperately wanted to be something and do something. And so I read a lot of British literature, the Victorians, um, because that's what I thought that smart people did. And what that ended up doing was sort of cultivating an interest in history and in the way that people had experienced things in the past. And when I went to college, I was really interested in European history, uh, in the history of the world, because it seemed bigger and greater than the place that I was from. And it was really only in graduate school that I became interested in American history and understanding the world that I had come from and had been produced by.
0: That potato museum sounds pretty fantastic, though. I'm going to have to put that on the list next time I'm driving through southeastern Idaho.
1: (laughs) They have a potato sack dress, I think. It's either a picture of the dress or the actual dress that Marilyn Monroe once wore.
0: Um, Wow.
1: And then an (laughs) entire wall of potato peelers.
0: So you you, you may have touched on this a a moment ago, but I'm also curious what brought you to the topic of this book in particular. In the intro to the book, you describe a conversation that you had with someone named Darren Perry and the role that he played in kind of shaping the questions that you ask here. But what's the story of what brought you to this, this topic in particular?
1: So as somebody growing up in Southeast Idaho, even though I was not a Latter-day Saint. I was immersed in Latter-day Saint culture and history and theology. And I, when I got to graduate school, um, was often asked, because I went to the University of Michigan, where there are very few Latter-day Saints. And so everybody saw it as something that was semi-interesting, sort of weird and exotic. And so I got a lot of questions about uh, Latter-day Saint history. And as a result of that, I just, started writing about Latter-day Saints for some of my seminar papers and my advisors were really interested in it and encouraged me to sort of write about it for my dissertation. And like a lot of people in southeastern Idaho, even if you grow up as non-Mormon, it's fairly likely that you have some Latter-day Saint history in your background. And in graduate school, as I was doing the research, I already knew that on my dad's side, I was descended from some fairly early converts to the church. And it turned out that sort of the first person in my family to convert to the church had uh, was my fifth great grandmother, um, a wooden, woman named Ada Clements and her husband Albert. And they had been living in, up in upstate New York and ended up converting in New York um, in either the 1820s or the 1830s and then moving with the church west. And so that was sort of my initial interest in the uh, topic of Latter-day Saint history. But one of the things that I discovered um, is that there was actually a global history of the church. And so I began sort of researching missionary work out of an interest of, of sort of how the effect of having these people go on missions quite early. Um, the earliest Latter-day Saint missions are probably in the 1830s. Um, And so you have people from the very beginning going to places like Great Britain or Tahiti. And I was really interested in how those affected sort of domestic life in Great Britain, or sorry, in uh, Utah. But then the other thing that sort of came up as I was researching is, Blackfoot, where I grew up, I was born in Pocatello, Idaho, and then grew up in Blackfoot. And most people, understandably, have no idea where those two places are. But if you know the geography of Idaho, Pocatello is on one side of the Fort Hall Indian Reservation, um, which is the home of the uh, Shoshone-Bannock Nation. And then Blackfoot is on the other side. And so I'd grown up in this area with a fairly large native presence. And my high school was one of the two high schools where a lot of uh, Shoshone and Bannock people um, went to high school. But that history was relatively untold um, in the area that I was from. And that was true for me, even though my great-grandmother's first husband, uh, I'm a product of her second marriage. Uh, But her first husband had been enrolled at Fort Hall and was Shoshone. And so I had great aunts and uncles who were enrolled at Fort Hall, who were Shoshone, um, in some cases Shoshone Bannock. And I knew very little about that history, in spite of the fact that I'd grown up right next to it. So I, as a child, had no idea, for example, that my great aunts and uncles had sort of been forced to go to boarding school. That wasn't mentioned. Um, I am white. And so that wasn't a part of the history that I knew, even though it was part of my family history. And so eventually, this book became an attempt to put my interest in Latter-day Saint history um, into conversation with sort of this local history that I didn't really know. Um, And one of the people who I sort of met along the way was Darren Perry, um, who is a member of the um, Northwestern band of the Shoshone Nation. Uh, he is the former chairman, and he and really his grandmother um, have become sort of stewards of that history, and in particular of the history of the Bear River Massacre, um, which occurred during the Civil War. Uh, the a Union Army general um, leading the California Volunteers um, comes in and ends up attacking uh, the Northwest band and within a couple of hours um, at least a couple hundred people are dead. The numbers, as with most massacres vary uh, according to which historian you talk to and then um, that the history of the Northwestern Shoshone then becomes entwined with the history of the church because after the massacre, um, the Northwestern Shoshone are trying to find a way forward. One of their leaders has a vision um, that they should convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And so the Northwestern Shoshone, unlike the Shoshone Bannock, who I had grown up amongst and next to, um, end up sort of being intertwined with the church, and many of them become church members. Uh, and so I. I've known Darren for a while now um, and we're often in conversation with each other, but sort of his attempt to tell his family story ended up shaping a lot of the ways in which I tried to tell my own family story and the story of the place that I grew up.
0: I'm going to ask you uh, maybe an unenviable question here. Um, I'm curious if you could, as briefly as possible, explain the history of the LDS Church in the 19th century. Maybe it's it's, it's yeah. maybe it's, it's or <laughs> it's, it's origins, perhaps, and maybe how it differs from older branches of Christianity. And in particular, I'm interested in how other Christians viewed the church in its early days. So, five minute history of the LDS Church. Go, Amanda.
1: <laughs> so uh, the history of the LDS Church. Beg- Begins in upstate New York uh, as a part of the Great Awakening. So the Great Awakening is this moment in American history in which you have itinerant or uh, I guess wandering would be one synonym for itinerant ministers who go around and are trying to infuse people uh, with sort of a deeper spiritual belief in God and re- recommit them to Christianity. And as part of this, there's lots of... Um, inspired uh, actions and movements uh, such as people speak in tongues and that's really what I mean by inspired not as though like I'm not making a claim about whether or not the Great Awakening is actually uh, sort of inspired by the divine but people see themselves that way and then they'll act by speaking in tongues or sort of being overcome and fainting and Joseph Smith uh, who's the founder of the Mormon Church is raised sort of in this tumultuous time period and he describes it as something that was really unsettling because minister after minister according to his own history is coming through upstate new york in the early 19th century and he as a child doesn't know which sort of church to join and he describes himself as sort of constantly seeking uh information about what particular church he should join and which one is is true and and is a sort of the most accurate representation of of God and sort of God's vision for the world and there's we don't actually have any contemporary accounts of what's happening Um, all of them come from a couple of years later but sometime around 1820 he um describes going in and sort of praying to God and asking him which church he should join. And for Joseph Smith, God is 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 male. Um, and receiving a vision um, or a revelation telling him that none of the current churches actually sort of represent the fullness of Christianity. And he has a couple more sort of prayers and encounters, and eventually he is told that God sort of had had interactions with the Americas in the past, and that there's a record of those interactions that have been written uh, sort of famously on golden plates and buried uh, in New York on Hill Cumorah. And so Joseph Smith uncovers the plates. um, He digs them up, basically, and then uh, he begins a process of translating them. Um, translating is somewhat uh, perhaps the wrong word. Uh, that's the word that the the church uses and most people would use. But the way that he translates is very foreign to people today. So he um, is very much influenced by the Bible. And in the Bible, they talk about seer stones, which can be used to ask God about his will or to try to find uh, different objects. They're sort of... Uh, stones that are imbued with with special spiritual power and so he uses the seer stone uh to sort of tell him what the translation would be and what's written on those plates becomes the the book of mormon Uh, and the book of mormon purports to be a history of these people um, who are in the americas and then a history of their interactions with god Sort of famously in the Book of Mormon, there's a passage in the Bible where it talks about Jesus descending into hell and then uh, sort of returning and being absent from the apostles uh, for a couple of, of days. And the Book of Mormon says that during that time in which Jesus is not interacting with the apostles, after he's died, um, he appears in the Americas as a resurrected being before he appears to the apostles in um the, the Middle East. Uh, and so Mormons or Latter-day Saints view this as sort of like a history of God's interactions with these people who they believe are the ancestors of Native Americans. And as Joseph Smith sort of translate this, translate this people around the area begin to hear about it and a church coalesces around him. And very early on the church is sending out missionaries to interact and to try to convert people in around New York State and then eventually uh, sort of globally but fairly early on people are suspicious uh, Protestants especially are suspicious of this church Um, they are suspicious of the idea that somebody would find another testament that there might be something in addition to the Bible that tells them about sort of God's vision for the world and so the Latter-day Saints very early on experience hostility from surrounding communities from surrounding churches and they end up moving from New York to Ohio to Missouri uh, to Illinois and at times uh, this tension and and distrust erupts into violence and so um, they are pushed out of Illinois there are stories of mobs in uh, Missouri attacking them and ultimately it culminates sort of in Joseph Smith's assassination Some of the reasons that people are suspicious of them uh, would include sort of their communalism. Early Latter-day Saints uh, are living together in a community. There's fears that they're voting as a bloc, that they're sort of running their community as this economic communal place, and that is going to disrupt the larger economy. Um, There's also rumors about polygamy, um, and Joseph Smith is sort of constantly accused of sort of tax evasion, of cheating other people, um, and so there ends up being this violence that leads to his assassination. After his assassination, uh, the Latter-day Saints experience quite a few schisms. The Some of the church ends up going to Utah, which is what we think of as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, as the Mormon church. Um, there's a significant group that follows a man to, to Michigan and sets up a kingdom uh, theological kingdom on uh, Beaver Island Um, there are other groups that sort of remain behind um, but the church that we sort of think of is inheriting Joseph Smith's mantle and I should say there are lots of different churches today that sort of sprout from the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith Um, but the one that most people think of is the church in Utah which is now led by Brigham Young um, or was led in the 19th century by Brigham Young In Utah, and as they're crossing the plains um, for the first time, Latter-day Saints are able to practice polygamy quite openly. And so Utah really becomes the place in which you have this flowering of polygamy, in which you have the Latter-day Saints experimenting um, with their religious tradition and with sort of its calls for communalism um, in Utah. And they probably from about the late 1840s uh, to the 1860s are sort of combining the religious and political aspects into creating what they would call a Zion. Um, Just sort of quickly, because I know we're running out of time, uh, or this needs to be fairly short. um, The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad sort of brings that separation to an end. uh, And then after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, the federal government Uh, begins to try to bring Utah into the rest of the United States and make it look more like the United States. And so you see heavy federal prosecution of uh, the polygamists in Utah. Uh, The church experiences this as a moment of persecution. If you read the stories, uh, you read stories about men being separated from their families, women sort of hiding from the federal government and from the, the Uh, federal agents who are coming to prosecute them for polygamy. Several church leaders are jailed for their practice of polygamy. And then as the tension becomes higher and higher, the church becomes afraid that if they don't abandon the practice of polygamy, that the church as a whole is going to be snuffed out. And so in 1890, the leader of the church uh, receives a revelation uh, telling him that the church needs to suspend the practice of polygamy. Uh, at least until the laws of the United States allow it um... And so they call for a temporary secession of polygamy, um, and that sort of ends up becoming a permanent secession of polygamy um, because the laws of the United States never change to allow for the practice of polygamy. Um, So I guess a basic uh, sort of couple sentence outline would be, Joseph Smith receives the golden plates in sort of the 1820s, Um, he dies uh, in the 1840s, is assassinated, the church moves west, and then for a while they're able to be separate from the United States develop this practice of polygamy, uh, develop their own government, and then the Transcontinental Railroad brings the federal government flooding in on them, and then the practice of polygamy ends in 1890.
0: I thought that was impressively brief. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious, and again, you you mentioned this a little uh, earlier, but I'm hoping you can expand on it a bit on the role of Native people in the early days of of the church, um, in terms of both theology, which you touched upon earlier, but also in kind of more, uh, how to put it, maybe more material terms in terms of, of, of conversion and membership as well in these early days in the 19th century.
1: So, yeah, the Book of Mormon, I mean, is really sort of where the emphasis on Native people comes from. So, the Book of Mormon purports to be a history of God's interactions with. The ancestors of Native Americans, according to Latter Day Saint belief, or at least how it's read in the 19th century, Um, there are people who today who try to read it differently um, and who are moving away from sort of that interpretation of the Book of Mormon. But in the 19th century, Latter Day Saints interpret the Book of Mormon as a history of the ancestors of Native Americans, and the basic outline of the Book of Mormon is that. Um, it starts as sort of a family story and you have, um, a group of Israelites who want to escape or have been told that they need to escape the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, I believe it around 600 BCE. And so they end up sort of fleeing Jerusalem and through a long and windy path uh, end up in the Americas. And as part of this family story, one of the uh, sort of some of the groups of the brothers end up turning away from, from God and from his commandments. And according to the Book of Mormon, God then curses them with dark skin because of their transgressions and to keep them separate from what are called Nephites in the text, who are following God's command. And Latter-day Saints in the 19th century sort of interpret this as, as telling them about why Native Americans are the way that they are. And so when 19th century Mormons look at Native Americans, they see them through sort of the racism of the 19th century. They see them as degraded. They see their dark skin or darker skin as evidence of that degradation. And the Book of Mormon ends with A promise that the Lamanites, which are what they sort of call the ancestors of Native Americans, will not be forgotten and that they will in the last days be redeemed, they will be restored to sort of their position as Israelites, Um, they will remember their history and their stories, and that God is going to come and redeem the Lamanites. And as part of that they describe sort of the Lamanites as as becoming physically lighter uh, and as having white skin as part of this redemption, and then as also sort of adopting what the Latter-day Saints see as a more civilized way of living. And so in the early church, a lot of people are sort of taken with this idea and they begin to launch um, missions to the Lamanites or to Native Americans to try to convert them to the church and bring about uh, sort of this end times in which Native Americans in mass convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and are in the eyes of the LDS restored to their position Um, in 1830 they have their sort of first mission to the Lamanites in which Joseph Smith calls a couple of men to travel to Ohio uh, to nations sort of that are gathering together because of Indian removal um, and to try to convert them in the early days of the church most Native Americans do not accept that the Book of Mormon is a history of their people. Um, They see this as an attempt of Christian people to try to impose a new story upon them and reject it sort of outright because they have their obviously their own stories about who they are. And those stories don't match up with what the Book of Mormon is saying. There are a few Latter-day Saints, or sorry, a few early native converts to the church. And these people are embraced uh, as sort of representing the things that are to come. When Joseph Smith is assassinated in 44, um, they... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is looking for a place um, where they can reestablish themselves. And one of the reasons why uh, what becomes Utah is seen as desirable is because it brings them closer to Native peoples than it had in the past. Um, And so they see themselves as moving sort of among or to the Lamanites where they will be able to have more... Conversion efforts and perhaps more success than they have in the past. And so the Latter day Saints, when they get to Utah, are really interested in missionary work among Native people. One of the things that's interesting is sort of as they're moving west across the plains, they're also figuring out what polygamy is going to look like. And so as they're sort of developing this marital system, they're developing at the same time that they are really encountering large numbers of Native people for the first time, some of whom also practice polygamy. Uh, and so Latter-day Saints are sort of developing their family system at the same time that they're engaging in missionary work among Native people. In Utah, their sort of experiences are mixed. For the most part, most of the people, Native people in Utah, don't initially accept the Latter-day Saint gospel. They react much the same as other Native people had and see it as sort of this Christian story that doesn't really match what their understandings of themselves are. There is, uh, There are some people who do convert to the church uh sort of famously, as I already mentioned, the Northwestern Shoshone. Um, There's also Chief Kenosh converts for a period in time. Um, There are other sort of leaders um, who convert. There are stories that uh, Chief Washakie may have uh, converted or at least flirted with the idea of converting. He's a Shoshone chief um, or leader. And so there are sort of these stories of Native people who convert. Um, But what becomes sort of quickly uh, apparent to the latter-day saints as they move into utah is that these people who are already living there are not going to be converting in mass um, and that their presence is not sort of initially welcomed as sort of bringing the gospel to these people and restoring them to their previous glory um, there's quite a bit of violence that goes on in early utah between white latter-day saints and um, the Native people who are already living there. And so very early on, um, you have attacks against Native, or sorry, Mormon cattle, for example, Um, the Ute, the Paiute, and the other native peoples of Utah, see these cattle as destroying uh, the ecosystems that had allowed them to exist. And they recognize sort of that the incursion of the Latter-day Saints is leading to the poverty of their people. Um, And many of them are quite hungry and starving, in in some cases, because of the arrival of Latter-day Saints. And so, um, there are native leaders in Utah such as Black Hawk, who will lead raids on Mormon cattle um, and kill them and then sell them or eat them uh, as part of an attempt to resist sort of Latter-day Saint incursion into their land. One of the things that ends up sort of happening um, is when the Latter-day Saints arrive in Utah there's a pre-existing slave trade between um, some of the Native communities and the Spanish. And so when they arrive, um, many of these sort of slave traders try to sell Native children to the Latter-day Saints. And the Latter-day Saints see this as an opportunity because they haven't had much success sort of converting other groups of Native people. And they see these children as an opportunity to be able to take Native children into their homes, uh, convince them, convert them to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then they're hoping that these Native children will then become missionaries and convert sort of the Native nations that are in Utah. and reading the stories of these children um, can be really sort of heartbreaking. Um, Just a couple of examples. There's a woman named Mary Mountain uh, who is adopted. uh, And adopted should probably be in quotation marks. Sometimes these children are treated as family members. Um, Other times, they are treated as servants. um, And sometimes they're even sort of treated as uh, sort of akin to slave labor. And so there's a wide variety of experiences of these Native children. But Mary Mountain is sort of adopted by a white Mormon family. Um, She ends up sort of caring for the family's other children. Um, They talk quite effusively about how much they love her and what a good child she is, um, and about how much she wanted sort of children or a family of her own. But what she sort of experiences is that she's not really a full part of the Latter-day Saint community. Um, She's unable to sort of find a white spouse. And then when she considers native spouses, they also don't really um, appeal to her because she's not really a member of the native community either. And so she ends up dying sort of at a very young age um, without children, uh, sort of never having been able to fully fulfill her dream of having children or getting married. And she lives within this in-between space. Um, And there's just dozens of examples of these children who are taken from their native families um, sometimes sold Uh, sometimes they'll be starving families within these native communities and white Latter-day Saints will convince them that sort of if you give us a child, it's going to be better for that child and for your family. And so they come into these white Mormon families in a variety of ways. But in most cases, they're never able to sort of be fully accepted uh, by the white community. And then they don't have those relationships to their native family members either. Um, And so they end up existing sort of in this liminal space um, in which they're not really quite a Latter-day Saint or at least a white Latter-day Saint and they don't really feel at home with their native family members either.
0: And this missionary work, it, it also extends globally, um, as, as the 19th century kind of kind of wears on. And there, there's a line in the book, I'm going to paraphrase you a bit here, where you say that that global missionary work uh, in the LDS church, that it rested upon a foundation of marriage and of kinship structures. And I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how the, the Mormon church kind of looked globally, and what were the roles of women and family and kinship in The early church and in this larger kind of uh uh, missionary uh uh work that's going on in this era
1: yeah so one of the things that um happens within the early church is so as i said they're trying to convert sort of um indigenous people but they also believe that like these are the end times and that they need to sort of gather the people of god um to zion um to Missouri, which is sort of seen as the the place where this will happen. And then afterwards, um, after they moved from Missouri and from Illinois to Utah, um, it's sort of a, an open question whether or not it's completely correct to call that zion most people today would identify um i mean if you go through utah everything is named zion um but there's this idea of physically gathering that you need to move to the community of saints and participate in the building the literal building of the kingdom of god and they believe that part of what god has asked them to do in the latter days is to call forth his people from the i Uh, They literally use like the words, the the islands, the isles of the sea, the nations of the earth, and to bring them to the Americas. And initially, one of the early places they go is Great Britain, um, because of the ties between the United States and Great Britain. But they're also sort of interested in other nations as well. And one of the places that they go fairly early on is to... Tahiti, uh, and then also to um, Hawaii or the Sandwich Islands as they're sometimes known in the 19th century. And one of the reasons for that is they are living in on the east coast of the United States. And there's a fair number of whalers uh, who live in places like Boston, where they go on early missionary work. Um, and these whalers have experience with Polynesians and with whaling. And Um, one of them, a man named Addison Pratt, convinces Joseph Smith that um, these people need to hear the gospel. And it's unclear exactly when, but by 1850, um, the Latter-day Saints have come to an understanding that these Polynesians um, are descendants of the same sort of group of American Israelites that are the descendants of Native Americans. And so they begin to see them as... um, Lamanites, sometimes, uh, I won't go into this, but sometimes they actually identify them as Nephites because of a particular passage in the Book of Mormon. Um, but they begin to see them as as peoples of the Book of Mormon. And that part of restoring the Lamanites to their status as Israelites is going to be doing the missionary work among these Polynesians. And they end up actually being really successful um, in some of the uh, islands near Tahiti and then in Hawaii. And one of the reasons for that is in Utah, it's fairly clear uh, that the Latter-day Saints are colonizing Utah and are dispossessing these native peoples. Even though at times they position themselves against the United States, um, many of the native people in Utah see them as as colonizers. Um, There's some debate about whether or not they see them as preferable to the United States as a whole. Um, In Polynesia, um, the Latter-day Saints are able to, because of the politics of the time, position themselves against the Protestant missionaries who are already there and against sort of the colonialism that's happening. And people who are feeling disenchanted, disaffected um, from the Protestant churches who are already there, end up sort of converting to Mormonism and seeing it as sort of a spiritual alternative to these other churches that gives them spiritual power and then allows them to sort of create this theology that is positioned against colonialism and then uh, foregrounds their own needs and and desires. Um, And women end up playing sort of an important role in Latter-day Saint missionary work among indigenous people because part of Mormon theology is that the they have sort of this idea that if you go through certain rituals in the temple, that it'll bind you together um, in the afterlife. And in the 19th century, not so much today, there's a desire to create sort of webs that will bind the Mormon community together and eventually bind humanity together um, and bind them to to Jesus and to God. Um, and so there's this, this desire to create and multiply these sort of family connections. Um, Some Mormon historians have actually used the word dynasty or dynastic to describe sort of the Mormon idea of kinship. And so one of the things that marriages between um, a white man and a native woman might do is it sort of ties that native community to the Latter-day saints um, but on a very practical level it also allows them entrance into those communities uh, because it ties sort of the Latter-day saints into these um, native kinship networks and allows them to to then have a uh, sort of of standing in this community that they wouldn't otherwise have. Their other hope is that um, the Mormon priesthood or the Latter-day Saint priesthood, they believe that that is sort of the thing that Binds families together, makes polygamy righteous, um, allows them to sort of create orderly families through polygamy. And the hope is, is that if you can have a Latter-day Saint man um, married to a Native woman, that then the children that they produce um, are going to be sort of good Latter-day Saints who... uh, are living um, civilized proper lives uh, and who are part of sort of this family but who are also orderly and and are latter-day Saints um, and I should say they never sort of inverse that logic and allow for the marriage of a white woman to a native man I think because of the racism of the 19th century and fears of interracial marriage, um, which they would have caused miscegenation, but also because of a question of what it would mean to have somebody who doesn't necessarily hold the priesthood or who they don't see as being disciplined enough uh, in charge of a family. And so they always imagine it sort of going from uh, a white Latter-day Saint man and a Native woman and never in the inverse. Although there are a couple of cases in which um, a white Latter-day Saint woman was married to um, a, usually uh, a Native child who had grown up within the Mormon community. Um, I can't think of one. That doesn't mean that there isn't any in which a white Latter-day Saint woman married an adult uh, Native convert. Um, But there are a couple of examples in which Native male children um, who grew up in the Mormon community uh, married white women. so, yeah, so there's this idea sort of of the, the family being bound together. There's these ideas that uh, family and kinship, um, when headed by a man who has the priesthood, will discipline and uh, create good, and I use that word with quotation marks, uh, Latter-day Saint interracial families. Um, And then there's just also this desire to go out into the world and bring the people of God back to the United States, which is seen as this promised land or this chosen land, um, so that the kingdom of God can be built and then God can sort of um, begin the, the latter days or the end times
0: and a major theme in this book are are our themes i guess i should say are, are imperialism and and particularly uh american settler colonialism and uh excuse me an argument that you make in the book is that the lds church kind of cast itself in comparison to american imperialism in the west and abroad as well so i'm curious how and why did they make this argument and in your interpretation did the church, in fact, offer any kind of real alternative to American settler colonialism in the American West?
1: Well, one of the things I think they're doing um, is trying to make an argument for why they should be allowed to be polygamous. Um, in the 19th century, there's this idea that in order to have a good republic or a good society, you have to have good families, and that it's in the family where you learn to be a good citizen of the United States. and The 19th century is a time of imperialism in the United States. It's a time of westward expansion. Um, They are trying to reconstruct the uh, American West just as much as they're trying to reconstruct the South to bring it into the rest of the nation. And for people in the 19th century, that means changing how native people act, dress, um, speak. It means changing their entire sort of way of life. And one of the things that Latter-day Saints argue is that they are just as good at sort of transforming Native lives as other Americans and that their ability to sort of take um, and, and they would use the word like civilize Native people is proof that their family structures are just as good and righteous as other family structures in the United States. And so really they're making an argument for themselves and for their own citizenship um, by pointing to the missionary work that they've done among Native people. The other thing they point to is the ways in which they've made cities uh, in Utah. And this is where the sort of famous language of of the desert blossoming as a rose comes from. Uh, Latter-day Saints argue quite explicitly. uh, Brigham Young will make statements in General Conference, for example, saying that when they came to Utah, it was a wasteland. And all of the work that they've done to build cities, to uh, do missionary work among Native people, to make it into an agricultural space, Base, um, is evidence that they sh- sort of deserve full American citizenship, and that they are just as righteous, just as holy, if not holier than everybody else. Um, and so they're making an argument for themselves as Americans. And because that argument is sort of predicated on a acceptance of settler colonialism, um, it ends up sort of meaning that that they even though they sort of sometimes feel as though they are unfairly treated or that their um, family systems are being dismissed or that the power that is being exercised against them is unjust, they don't extend that same sort of analysis to Native people. And so Latter-day Saints uh, will often sort of position themselves as the victims of American expansion, as the victims of American intolerance, but they don't extend that same sort of sense and, and understanding to Native people, whether it be in the United States or whether it be in uh, the Pacific Islands. Um, and I think in some ways, um, they're akin to other sort of internal divisions within colonial nations. So sort of famously in Great Britain, um, both the Scottish and the Irish um, see their ways of life sort of transform, but then they also participate quite enthusiastically in some cases in British colonialism, and I think you can argue the same for Latter-day Saints. In some ways, um, they are the uh, subjects of, of a remaking and a sort of colonial attitude, and, and some historians have argued that Mormons are a subject people under a sort of American colonialism, but there are other ways in which um, the Latter-day Saints are full participants in American colonialism. And um, certainly for the Ute or the Paiute or the Shoshone or the Bannock, um, it's not quite clear to me that they end up um, in a better position because it's the Latter-day Saints who initially settle Utah um, than, you know, people in, Native people in Nevada or in California who are colonized by by Protestants or Catholics. Um, And so it's not clear to me that there is sort of a benefit or a distinction between the type of settler colonialism that they are enacting. Um, That being said, in the 19th century, Latter-day Saints will separate themselves from Americans and sort of argue that they are friendlier towards Native people than other Americans. And Brigham Young at times will sort of say, like, it would be cheaper for us to feed Native people than to fight them. At other times, however, he sort of talks about their rejection of Latter-day Saint uh policy, theology, ways of life, um, and sort of will argue for their extermination. Uh, And so Brigham Young himself seems to go back and forth, Um, but at least for me, uh, and this is a fairly debated point, there are Latter-day Saint or Mormon historians who will argue that Brigham Young is kinder to Native people, uh, but for me, I'm not so sure that there's a distinction to be made um, in the outcomes of Mormon colonialism versus American Protestant colonialism.
0: I want to go back to the question of polygamy for a moment, and one of my my favorite, or maybe a different way to put it, is one of what I found to be the most enlightening arguments that you make in the book, is that the development of polygamy among uh, Latter-day Saints uh, communities, among among people in the church, that it actually reflects kind of pre-existing kinship structures and sexual and family practices that were already present in the American West. You talked a little bit about that in the context of of Native people earlier in our conversation, but I wonder if you could expand on this a bit. I thought this was a really a really fascinating part of the book.
1: Yeah. Um, so t- let me back up just a second uh, for anybody and explain how sort of how polygamy develops. Um, so I think one of the misconceptions about polygamy is that people who converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in maybe like the 1830s or 40s always knew about the practice of polygamy. Um, and in Nauvoo, uh, which is in Illinois, where um, a lot of early Mormon converts end up sort of first arriving, the practice of polygamy is actually fairly underground and secret. Um, And so Joseph Smith, we actually don't know when he first sort of started the practice of polygamy, but at some point he receives a revelation, or at least this is the way that he casts it, that tells him that they need to revive um, the marital practices of the old testament and sort of to become literal patriarchs by living polygamy and they'll point to people like jacob and abraham um, and these old testament patriarchs as sort of evidence that god does indeed sanction the practice of polygamy but because of both internal and external politics um, the latter-day saint leaders are fairly reluctant to be open about the practice of polygamy. And so there's this expectation in Nauvoo that if you are um, married or sealed uh, to somebody, you don't necessarily talk about it and people may or may not know who their husband is sealed to. And most Latter-day Saints, and this would include Latter-day Saint men, um, know about polygamy as a rumor But don't actually sort of uh, believe it's happening and don't necessarily know about the practice. And so, in an interesting example, Addison Pratt, who brings the, um, who's one of the first missionaries to Tahiti, when he leaves um, Nauvoo, he believes that the Latter day Saints are monogamous. And he hears lots of rumors in Tahiti about polygamy and the practice of polygamy. um, But he thinks that that's just sort of people making up stuff to try to discredit the church. It's only after Joseph Smith's death when he feels compelled, um, because he's heard that the Latter-day Saints are on the move and he's worried about his family. So he goes back to the United States to try to locate his family and figure out where they are, um, that he finds out that actually the rumors are true about polygamy. And so most people in the 1830s and 40s don't know that polygamy is happening. And this is particularly true in Great Britain where you have um by 1852 something like 30,000 converts, most of those British converts have no idea that polygamy is happening. Um and then on the plains as they're moving across be- the Latter-day Saints begin to sort of be open about this practice of polygamy. Brigham Young's wives travel together, some of them for the first time. Uh, His daughter refers to them as girl wives and talks about their movement across the plains as as the first time in which sort of they really became sister wives. But one of the things that is also true is that polygamy already existed in the American West, some of it among native peoples, but there's also examples of fur traders um, having more than one wife, more than one native wife. Um, and it was fairly common in among fur traders um, for them to marry a native woman. And then once they had made enough money uh, to move back uh, East, and/or even just to bring out sort of a white woman uh, to marry and then to put away their native wife. And so you sometimes had um, these fur traders marrying two Native women, sometimes, you know, more. Um, You also had instances in which they would marry a Native woman and then sort of leave her behind once they felt that they had enough money to sustain um, a marriage with a white woman. Um, And so you had all of these different family structures that already existed in the American West. And there's one instance that we have in which a woman is just sort of, she's a polygamous woman, she's married polygamously, but she's never sort of Lived polygamy. And so she's moving across the American West on the plains after Joseph Smith's death. And in her diary, she records that they came across a fur trader and his two native wives. And one of the things that I find super frustrating is I really want to know sort of what she thought um, when she came across this fur trader who's practicing polygamy. Did she see herself in that relationship? Um, Did she sort of immediately uh, refuse? to make any connection um how did she respond to sort of seeing other people practicing polygamy and then once they get to utah and are sort of establishing this church there are instances in which latter-day saints um welcome native people uh into the temple and uh, and sort of allow them to sanctify their relationships using these sort of rituals that they perform in the temple to make uh, to seal family members together. But one of the things that I find interesting is even though Latter-day Saints practice polygamy, I've been unable to find, which doesn't mean it's not out there, but nobody I've talked to has ever found anything either, of um, a Native American man being sealed polygamously to Native wives. It just doesn't seem that they were willing to countenance those particular relationships within the temple. Um, And so... Latter-day Saint polygamy is sort of growing up in this world in which there are other people who are polygamous. And one of the things that seems to be happening is that they don't want to sort of fully recognize these other relationships as being similar to theirs and and being willing to sort of recognize them in the temple as being legitimate. And so they seem to put their own polygamy in a separate category from these other native polygamies. Um, and then when they encounter fur traders who are polygamous, They comment that they've met these people, but don't even really sort of take the time to think about or unwilling to sort of comment on any similarities or differences that they see.
0: And as you explain in the book, by the late 19th century, all of this missionary work and the fact that the the, the Mormon church has been embedded in the American West begins to create these kind of interracial kinship networks that that, that that develop among white members of the church and native people. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about these networks and maybe in particular, what were the, the limits of, of this kind of uh, interracial kinship within the church itself? <laughs>
1: So a lot of those come from um, the adoption of native children. We do have a couple of instances um, in which a a white man uh, has some white wives uh, who he's married to polygamously, and then takes uh, a a native wife. Um, and I'm actually there's a. So I mentioned this in the book, but I do want to sort of uh, also mention Lindsay Hansen Park um, is a Mormon historian who is um, a descendant of Juanita Brooks, who's sort of a famous Mormon historian from earlier in the uh, 20th century. And Juanita Brooks um, was one of the first people to write about these relationships. And part of the reason that she did was actually, um, it was either her father or grandfather uh, had some white wives and then had taken a native wife. And so she grew up with a native woman as part of her kinship network um, or a part of her family uh, and then sort of wanted to untangle that in the own stories that she wrote. And the reason I mention Lindsay Hansen Park is she is writing a biography of Juanita Brooks um, and is sort of teasing out, I think for the first time, how uh, growing up in this, this, Interracial family then um, affected this early Mormon historiography about Native people, and particularly in the life of Juanita Brooks. And she talks about uh, Juanita's relationship um, to her Native family member um, and the ways in which they it was brought up and then at other times sort of pushed under the rug. But I think. Um, in the And the case that I mentioned in the book is the same family. And so it's like Dudley Lovett's family. And what's interesting about this family is he takes a Native wife, and because he does so, you can see sort of the family trying to work out uh, what that relationship looks like. And one of his wives, I believe it's Thurza, although I need to find the page number to check, um, is really unsettled by the idea that she is going to have a native sister wife even though she's um she's actually living in a fairly um small Latter-day Saint settlement that has a large Native presence around it, but she has a hard time sort of imagining um, her husband taking this Native wife, and she doesn't fully comment on why. Um, I mean, we can sort of speculate on why. I'm guessing it would be hard for her to imagine sort of doing dishes with a Native woman, um, raising her children with a Native woman. It's also probably hard for her to imagine her husband having sex with a Native woman and then having sex with her afterwards. Um, And so So she really struggles with um, this potential relationship. The one thing that I think for her makes it something that she can deal with is the fact that this woman doesn't have any authority over her in the household because she's coming in later. Um, And for women for whom the native wife would be the first wife, it actually ends up creating an even more tense situation. Um, There's one example I can think of where that happens. Um, A man named Benjamin F. Garrard um, is one of the early missionaries to Tahiti. He ends up taking a native wife um, in a Polynesian wife in Tahiti and then bringing her back to the United States along with her children. And um, he is thinking about entering into polygamy. And he talks about it with his first wife and she's willing to um, enter into that relationship. And she says sort of, as long as she respects me, as long as she recognizes me as a wife. And it ends up that that marriage doesn't really work out. And we don't have a diary from his first wife or even from his second wife that I'm aware of that would tell us exactly why. Um, But what ends up happening is he, he gets remarried. And at some point, he decides to send his first wife back to French Polynesia to Tahiti, because of the sort of racism and skepticism of the other Latter-day Saints that they're living among, her life has become so difficult um, that she just can't, she can't stay in that community. And so um, if the marriage had worked out, she would have been the first wife and she would have had some authority over the white wives that he then took. But the relationship between her and the other women in the community is is tense enough um, that instead of sort of trying to work that out, the marriage just dissolves he sends her back and then it's sort of in a heartbreaking story. Um, He makes her choose which of her children to take with her and then gives her other children um, to other white Mormon families to raise. He doesn't even raise the children himself. And so um, his wife sort of watches her family being broken apart and then is forced to choose which of her children to take with her and and which to stay. and a lot of times, so one of the places in which these families sort of encounter difficulty is around, I think, the issue of authority within homes, although it's not really well documented. And so this is me speculating a bit. The other place it really breaks down is around inheritance. And we see that in particular in a case from the late 19th century surrounding a man named John T. Gar. Um, John T. Garr had been born confusingly to a man named Johnny Gar um, and a Shoshone woman um, and he his mother at some point and we don't know exactly when brings him to Johnny Gar uh, or sorry I have that backwards it's John Tigar is the father Johnny Gar is the son so she brings him to John T. Gar um, and asks John Tigar to raise him and he takes the boy into his home and the boy grows up and there are plenty of stories um, about sort of the racism that he faced. They're living in northern Utah, sort of near Logan. And there's stories of him sort of getting in fights um, over people who he thinks have called him like a dog. Um, He gets angry and sort of gets into tussles with people who sort of call out the fact that he is part native. Um, And so he has a somewhat troubled childhood. When he grows up, he marries a white woman who's living in the community, um, and they have children together. And then tragically, he ends up dying in an accident um, in a local canyon, and in in, I think his wagon overturns. And it's his wife then is sort of faced with the prospect of raising the two children that she has, and then she's pregnant with twins at the time. Um, and her father-in-law, John T. Gar, takes her in, and they end up raising the children together. When John T. Gar dies, there's a question of who's going to inherit the estate. And if you take sort of the ideas of Mormon theology seriously, um, then it shouldn't matter sort of whether or not uh, John T. Gar was Johnny's biological father. Um, and but um, and the estate then should go to to her children, um, who are John T. Gar's. Uh, grandchildren. But John T. Gar's brothers and sisters um, end up contesting the inheritance and say that although Johnny Gar was raised in the household, although he had sort of been informally adopted by the family, they don't actually believe that he is the biological child of John T. Gar. And so they try to prevent um, his grandchildren from inheriting the estate. And they sort of argue partially um, that there were a lot of Native children that were brought into the fam into families in the area that most of them were not biologically related, um, and that as a result, um, Johnny Gar was just another one of those kids and should not get the estate. They ultimately, after a fairly back and forth legal battle, end up losing. Um, but it sort of highlights the limits of this that when money's at stake at sometimes when authorities at stake that these interracial marriages adoptions um, end up being contested and that there's a real question in this time period about whether these native children um, who grow up into adults um, are truly members of the family uh, in the families that considered them family members and not servants or whether there's something else and in a lot of cases um, these children are specifically excluded from inheriting uh, and which is interesting for Latter-day Saints because Latter-day Saints had always maintained that these rituals that they're performing in the temple sort of transcend biology um, and remake families and tie people together um, and As the 19th century goes on, um, it becomes very clear that there's still this biological element of kinship uh, for Latter-day Saints and that a lot of people um, are seeing kinship as biological rather than as something that can just be remade uh, by ritual.
0: And toward the end of the book, you also uh, uh, describe what you call native Zions, um, these, these kind of communities of converted uh, uh, Latter-day States members among groups like the Shoshone and like indigenous Hawaiians. Um, and I'm wondering how these communities took shape, what the histories of these places and these communities are, and how were they, and indeed were they at all, able to survive and integrate into broader LDS culture?
1: Yeah, so there's two communities that come uh, to mind specifically. Um, one is um, Washakie in northern Utah, which is a uh, Shoshone Mormon town. And then the other is Yosepa, uh, which is near Tuella. Um, so both of them are sort of in the, I guess, well, uh, Washakie is really in um, near It's much closer to Idaho uh, than it is to, like, Salt Lake City. Uh, But both of them are sort of in that same general area. So Tuella is part of, I would say, uh, the Salt Lake metro area. And what uh, Washakie was is um, after the Bear River Massacre and the conversion of the northwestern Shoshone to... um, Mormonism, there was a question about where these people were going to set up their home and their community. The federal government wanted to send them to Fort Hall, um, and in fact most of the Shoshone um, who are living in the area end up at Fort Hall. The Northwestern Shoshone don't end up going to Fort Hall, and instead they set up this separate community. And this community um, really became a place for them to recreate the shoshone sort of lifeways and and understanding of the world and to create sort of a native mormonism um that reflected sort of who they were and how they saw themselves um there were white Latter-day Saint leaders who were sent to be bishops or leaders within the community. But for the most part, it's Shoshone-led and Shoshone-run. Um, they have uh, their own meeting house. They have their own school. Um, they, in some of the drawings, have a, a racetrack, uh, which a lot of the Shoshone were involved in um, Indian relay races, uh, which are still sort of held at the Southeastern Idaho State Fair, Um, they would race horses, that is still fairly common. Um, And there was an adoption of sort of uh, horses and and cattle as a way to sort of perpetuate Shoshone lifeways after the destruction of the buffalo and other animals in in Idaho and Utah, which is a fairly common story um, in the Intermountain West. Uh, but it was definitely a town in which sort of the Shoshone are able to recreate sort of the life that they had seen themselves losing after the Bear River Massacre. Um, there are probably dozens of pictures um, of life in this town. Um, they were able to sort of speak shoshone sometimes in general conference Um, there were shoshone men who were called um, to uh, be leaders within the congregation Um, they were able to uh, continue practicing sort of uh, the artwork that they had led Uh, they had baseball teams Um, it ended up sort of being this town in which this community could could maintain the relationships that they had had and then the other thing that was sort of important for the northwestern shoshone is it also gave them access to the temple um logan is maybe mm, 20 to 30 minutes away i might be wrong on that because i don't have to make a drive from from washakie to logan uh my home is in a different place and so i'll i usually drive those separately um, but they were able to go up to Logan and what though the access to the temple was able to give them was the ability to sort of remake families that had been destroyed by the Bear River massacre and so if you read sort of stories written by the northwestern shoshone the massacre isn't the end of the northwestern shoshone in fact in many ways it ends up being a beginning uh But it is an important sort of moment for their community because it represents a transition time in which they have to sort of rethink what the future is going to look like. And it also represents a time in which um, many of them have lost family members. Many of them sort of watch uh, grandmothers, children, wives, husbands die in quite violent ways. And in the temple, and we have the records that sort of document this, um, they are able to perform Uh, rituals that would bring those people into the church, but they're also able to sort of solidify bonds that may have been broken apart by uh, the Bear River Massacre. And so they use the temple to sort of recreate the families that had been lost to the violence of colonialism. Um, The other sort of story that's told is that uh, a woman... um, while visiting the temple had received a vision that told her sort of where the people who had died in the Bear River Massacre lay. And so the temple, as much as it's a site of colonialism uh, and a representation of sort of the Mormon control of the area. If you've ever driven through Southeast Idaho or Utah, um, I think one of the ways that the church claims space is through the building of temples and through the building of ward houses. They sort of dominate the skyline and announce like, this is a place that is controlled by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But for the Northwestern Shoshone, um, they also offer the opportunity for them to sort of make what they had lost and remake what they had lost. And so in many ways, the Northwestern Shoshone, through the creation of Washakie, through their use of Mormon temple rituals, are able to claim space that had sort of been taken from them. Um, And the Northwestern Shoshone are able to... Assert their own understanding of the gospel um, through their ability to have church services where it's mostly Shoshone and then maybe, a, you know, like one or two white families. Um, they're able to determine what that community looks like. They're able to grow their own crops. It really represents a way forward um, that they uh, weren't initially able to see after the Bear River Massacre. Um, there are tensions between. Um, the Northwestern Shoshone at times, and the Shoshone who are living at Fort Hall. Um, A lot of the people who are at Fort Hall had had family members convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or leaders convert, um, who felt very disillusioned with the way that they were treated by the church, and then end up leaving and going to Fort Hall. Um, But there are still those family ties between the Northwestern Shoshone and the Shoshone Bannock. and But what's interesting is the Northwestern Shoshone, um, they've lost the land since then um, in a fairly complicated uh, legal process and tax history that I'm not quite sure that I am skilled enough to understand, but uh, they... They end up losing the land. I think there were some maybe unpaid taxes um, is one story that I've heard um, because it wasn't formally set up as a reservation. But the Northwestern Shoshone still maintain a presence in the area and have their headquarters in Brigham City, uh, which is nearby. And so it still becomes sort of this uh, Northwestern Shoshone space. um, And then they end up seeing themselves through the Mormon stories about what's going to happen to the Lamanites um, and many of them end up claiming a Lamanite identity. I do think that's probably um not as popular as it once was, but definitely for those initial generations. um, They see the Mormon stories as fundamentally as their stories. Um, And Darren Perry very sort of passionately will often say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but some of it is the same language, that the story of his family is just as important, important to the church as any pioneer story. And that sort of, for him, his family history is a Mormon history and that the two are are intertwined and inseparable. Um, the history of Yoseppa is a little bit different. Um, the church first goes to the Hawaiian Islands and Yosepa is a Hawaiian Mormon town in uh, 1850. Uh, they initially plan to missionize among whalers who are in Hawaii, uh, but then the white whaling communities of Hawaii aren't really interested in the church. and. One of the men, famously, I believe it's George Q. Cannon, has a vision, or, or maybe a revelation is is more accurate, telling him to turn to the native people of Hawaii uh, and missionize and um, that these people are descendants of the Book of Mormon. And so he does so. The church ends up being wildly successful in Hawaii. Um, if you've ever vis- visited the Polynesian Cultural Center um, in Hawaii, um, Hawaii on the island of Oahu, that's run and controlled by the church. Um, and so they have a fairly large uh, Latter-day Saint community in Hawaii. And one of the things that had happened in Hawaii is that the land had started out as being sort of a communal communal holding of various um, Hawaiian communities. Um, over time, that land is lost um, and privatized. And the connection that Native Hawaiians had felt with the land, um, which they had called or had seen as um, as sort of like a relative of theirs, had been severed, and the church ends up establishing on Oahu um, a separate Latter Day Saint community uh, called Le'ie, Uh and. One of the things that I argue in the book is that this allows Hawaiian Latter-day Saints to reestablish a connection with the land. It's not the same connection that they had had earlier. Latter-day Saints don't view the land as a older sister or as a relative, um, but they do view the land as something that is sacred and that they have a relationship with. Um, many Protestant communities will talk about Zion. Um, the difference is that the Latter-day Saints view that as a physical space. Um, and so for these Native Hawaiians, it allows them to, to sort of see the land as sacred again and to reestablish those relationships. Part of the problem, though, for Latter-day Saints in 19th century Hawaii. Um, is there's no temple in Hawaii and a big part of the faith of 19th century Latter-day Saints is the importance of temple rituals and being able to access a temple And so people in Hawaii in the 19th century would travel to the United States uh, to be able to perform sort of temporal rituals in Utah. But when native Hawaiians did so, they often experienced a fair amount of discrimination uh, in Salt Lake City from people who believed that native Hawaiians uh, had leprosy and that they were going to spread leprosy throughout uh, Salt Lake City. And so Yosepa is initially Uh, established as a gathering place for native hawaiians and other polynesians where they can live within within uh within sort of the this mormon community where they can gather to utah um, and have access to the temple but also live apart from other latter-day saints um, and and be able to sort of have a space apart from the community that had been discriminating against them and so it gives them a space where um, white latter-day saints don't necessarily have to think about the polynesians who are living there Um, they can sort of delight in the gathering of polynesians but they don't have to live among them Uh, and then the polynesians can be safe from from the white racism of 19th century utah Uh, and so the town ends up sort of being created for as a gathering place for Polynesians so that they can have access to the temple, so they can gather to this place and help create the kingdom of God. It lasts for a couple of decades um, and ends up uh, sort of in many ways being a a Polynesian Zion. Um, The people who are living there, um, there's petroglyphs that remain um, where they've drawn Turtles and and symbols on the rock to sort of represent Hawaii and and the Pacific Islands. Um, they end up creating uh, schools where Polynesian children go to school in Utah and and learn what it means to be a Polynesian Latter Day Saint. And for the people who are living here again, just like with the Shoshone, there's no real separation for them uh, between being a Latter-day Saint and being Polynesian. Um, Because the Book of Mormon purports to be a history of their ancestors, they see uh, Mormon history as Polynesian history. Um, This community, Washakie probably lasts until the mid-20th century. Um, The history of Yoseppa is much shorter. They end up deciding to build a... um, temple in Hawaii in Laie and once um, they decide to uh, build that they end up calling back the people who had moved to Utah to have access to the Utah temple um, they call them back to help build the uh, Hawaiian temple in Laie which is um, completed around it it's either 1916 or 1917 um, somewhere around there maybe 1919 so they're building it sort of right during the world war one years Um, and so they call these polynesians back from uh, yosepa and to complete the temple in hawaii and then sort of the the yosepa becomes a ghost town Um, it's actually still an important place today uh, for polynesian latter-day saints in the last couple of decades, there's actually been a large um, immigration of Polynesians and Pacific Islanders to uh, Utah. And so Recently, within the last couple of decades, um, that space has sort of been reclaimed as a way for people living in Utah who are Polynesian to sort of have a space uh, in Utah and have a Polynesian history of Utah. Um, And so people go there uh, during Memorial Day, at least pre-pandemic, I'm not sure post-pandemic, and they will have um, a celebration of the early Polynesian settlers who came to Utah and formed that town. And so even though Josepa is short-lived, it still is in some ways a locus of a Polynesian Mormonism um, that is located within Utah.
0: And as we begin to, to wrap up here, um, I'm curious if you could bring this story up to the present day, what are some of the legacies of, of these, 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 these kinship networks and of these uh, indigenous uh, uh, sort of relationships between the, the, the church and, and indigenous people? And I guess kind of as a broader question, how is this history remembered um, within the church itself, both among indigenous uh, members and non-members of, of the church and among white members of the church as well?
1: So I think one of the things, I mean, one immediate legacy is that the church um, does have large numbers of Polynesian uh, members within the church. Um, And in many ways, because the church was more successful in Hawaii, and then I don't talk about this much in the book, but New Zealand, um, that those, the Polynesians have become sort of, The people that Latter-day Saints, they become the most successful sort of Lamanite, and I want to put that in quotation marks, uh, mission for the church. And the church has really celebrated uh, the conversion of Pacific Islanders and Polynesians to to Mormonism. Uh, And there are large numbers of Pacific Islanders in Utah because of that. Um, You also have the construction of um, BYU-Hawaii, originally the church college, um, which has become a a part of the Latter-day Saint educational system uh, and so the church still has a huge presence especially on the island of Oahu um, where they are able to influence uh, the local community where you still have these large Latter-day Saint populations um, and then you see some movement back and forth between um, BYU Hawaii and and BYU Provo. Um, the church in the 20th century has had an interesting relationship with indigenous peoples across across the world um in the mid 19th century um there was a somewhat conscious movement to embrace um and to re focus on sort of proselytizing and converting and and promoting um Native American Latter-day Saints, but also Polynesian Latter-day Saints, um, and and Latin American Latter-day Saints. Um, And the church in the 60s and 70s um, would spend a lot of time and a lot of money sort of promoting uh, the the presence of these people within the church. Um, And there was actually a a prophet of the church who really believed that it was his calling uh, to sort of make sure that the church remembered its interactions with indigenous people and put more money and more effort um, into trying to convert and and help um, Polynesians, Native Americans, and Mexican Americans in particular. Um, And so the church, for example, at BYU, they had um, dance teams uh, that they would um, recruit Native students to join, and then they would perform um, as part of Lamanite Generations um, in an effort to sort of highlight the cultures um, of the people that the church called Lamanites. Um, They also had other programs that were designed as sort of social networks for uh, Lamanite peoples um, at BYU, or what the church saw as Lamanite peoples. But it also has a really troubling sort of resonance with the 20th century as well. Um, one of the things um, that was promoted in the mid to late 19, or sorry 20th century um, was something called the Indian Placement Program, uh, which was a program in which white Mormon families would take Uh, an Indian child um, into their homes during the school year uh, to be educated. And a lot of them were Navajo, but not exclusively. Um, And so the church would encourage um, Navajo Latter-day Saints, um, and just the Navajo in general, and then other Native Latter-day Saints um, to send their children to white Mormon families so that they could be educated within the these sort of white high schools and within the church. And some people had a good experience within these um, families uh, that they were sort of brought into and semi-adopted into, um, but a large number of people who experienced the Indian placement program um, saw it as as another form of boarding school, as another form of um, trying to take Native people away from their culture, and as another way to break apart Native families. Um, And so, although Latter-day Saints weren't necessarily adopting um, Native children in the same way that they were in the 1850s and 60s, there's still this emphasis on bringing these Native children into white families and then using that as a method of conversion and a method of, of um, quote unquote, civilizing them. Um, and there's been a lot of pain and a lot of call for uh, recognition um, and not financial restitution, but some sort of of willingness to atone or to think about the pain that this may have caused people. Um, A lot of people who participated in the Indian placement program are still alive. Um, It was still active into the 90s. Um, And so if you talk to Latter-day Saints, a large percentage of them, larger than you'd expect, would say, oh, I had a parent or a family member, um, and we brought in a a Native child. Um, And so there's this real sort of sense among the white families who participated in it that they were doing a good thing and a lot of pain. Uh, among some of the Native children who participated, that they have have really sort of been harmed in real material ways by this practice and that they don't feel as connected to their Native community as they might otherwise, um, had they just been allowed to grow up on the reservation, or grow up among their Native family members. Um, And so there's a lot of tension still surrounding the place of Native people in Mormon families. I guess the other thing that sort of ends up sort of shaping the way that that Native people currently exist um, within Native families is the um, former Apostle George P. Lee. He was a Native Apostle um, who was ordained within the church um, at the same time that uh, that Spencer W. Kimball, who's a prophet who really sort of uh, embraced the idea of the Lamanite, he. was close with George P. Lee um, who was the first uh, native general authority of the church Um, and when he was sort of um, really at the height of his influence which would have been in the 1970s he was seen as sort of embodying the promises that the church had made to Native Americans. And he was really influential for a lot of people. And when um, he was a member of the, uh, when he was a general authority, um, he ended up sort of being really close with the Native Mormon community. Um, if you talk, especially with Navajo members, um, he married a lot of uh, Native um Native church members. Uh, he spoke with their parents. Um, he represented sort of the hope of, of Native Latter-day Saints in many ways. And then um, in he was eventually excommunicated and the church never sort of officially said why. Um, George P. Lee himself uh, sort of believed that it was because he had become too outspoken about the importance of Native people to the church and had sort of accused the church of neglecting its responsibility to Native people. Um, There's also overwhelming evidence that he had molested um, some church members, young uh, women, and that that may have been a part of it as well. And sort of when George Paley was excommunicated, and then when he was convicted of sexually molesting children, it really raised a lot of questions for people um, about the church, about its sort of role um, in Native communities, and what that was going to look like in the future. I think right at the moment for Native Latter-day Saints, there's a real sort of attempt to reckon with the legacies of the idea of the the word lamanite um freena king who's a professor at the university of oklahoma organized a conference last year on the word lamanite um i was in attendance um although the conference was really geared towards native mormons and what i came away from with that from that conference is in the past especially uh, sort of around the time of the civil rights movement in the 1970s when spencer w kimball was promoting the idea of the lamanite there was a lot of pride um, around being a descendant of the peoples of the book of mormon and people took that on as an identity uh, but for younger generations it's been a source of pain and a sort of sense that the church um, has been patronizing towards Native people that Lamanite is a racist idea, especially the idea that you might be cursed with dark skin for turning away from God and that somehow being darker skinned is a sign of being less righteous. Uh, and younger generations have a much more conflicted relationship with the idea of, of the Lamanite. Um, there's also been DNA evidence um, with all of the problems of DNA evidence that shows that native people in the americas in polynesia are not descended from american israelites who escaped the destruction of jerusalem and so there's also been sort of a reckoning with like is this a literal idea that i'm going to accept that i am a sort of descendant of the jewish people or is this something that that i'm going to reject and say that that my people's history is what sort of Navajo or Shoshone stories or Ute stories of our people have always been. And that I'm going to reject sort of the Mormon story of who I am. And if that's true, what does that mean for the Book of Mormon? And if I'm not going to accept the Book of Mormon as a literal text, what does that mean for me as a native Latter-day Saint? And so I think a lot of native people now are trying to figure out sort of what their place within the church is uh, and what they want it to be.
0: So as a, as a kind of a summary question here at, at the end of, of, of our conversation, I'm always interested in getting my guests to think about their book from the perspective of someone reading their book and maybe looking back on the book or thinking back to the book from a remove of a year or a couple years. And I'm wondering what you would hope that reader would take away or would remember from this book kind of further on down the line. What might that be?
1: I think what I would want um, people to take away is that there's a lot of promise within Mormon theology surrounding ideas of the family. I do think that there's something beautiful about the idea that you can bind people together and that all of humanity is sort of bound together. Um, There's also something beautiful in the idea of progression, that we're always working towards something greater. But what I also hope people would take away um, is that there are ideas about race and family um, that Latter-day Saints sort of had as, as part of the Book of Mormon, as part of these ideas that led them to cause real harm to Native families um, and that, that people have experienced real pain as a result of the church and that we need to sort of remember that history. Um, we, being the people like living in the Intermountain West or the United States as a whole, not just Latter-day Saints, but that people need to be sort of cognizant of that history and the pain that it has caused people. Um, and that part of moving forward and figuring out what a better future looks like is is understanding sort of the places that people have been in the past. And then. I guess the third thing that I would want people to sort of um, come away with is that even though these are stories of of pain, both on the part of Native people and the white settlers, um, one of my own family histories from the 19th century is um, one of my ancestors was a a white settler who was living in, either Wyoming or southeastern Idaho, depending on when the story was, and that they had had a child, the child passed away, and the ground was too frozen, uh, so they couldn't bury the child. So they put it in the root cellar um, and then had to sort of deal with the emotional trauma of um, seeing, that child in the cellar until the spring came when they could finally sort of give their child a proper burial. Um, and so there's real pain sort of that happened as a result of the settlers coming West unprepared, not knowing exactly what to expect. There was real pain as, as Native families were destroyed and torn apart. Um, but in spite of that pain, people took what they had and made something that worked for them and that they could find meaning in. And so I guess I hope that people um, sort of recognize the difficulty of that history, um, but also recognize the resilience of people and how are they were able to come out of it. And then sort of think about what it would mean to take these histories seriously, to teach them to people, and then to think about changes that might be necessary or restitution that might be necessary, um, or sort of relationships that might need to be repaired in order for us to move together as a society towards something better. I don't know. That's Which really general, sort of, but it's... it's
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was just going to say that that, that that sounds to me, that's kind of the, the power and the promise of, of history as a whole, right? And yeah, it definitely, yeah it, it definitely applies to, to the story that you tell here as well. Um, For my my final question, I always like to uh, get a preview, if possible, of what my guests are working on next. I know that your book only came out, what, something like six months ago or (laughs) so, pretty pretty recently. But, um, you know, I know historians and we all have a few plates spinning at any one time. So I'm curious what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, so there's two projects. Um, One uh, is a short-term project. So um, Matthew Bowman and Joe Spencer have a series at the University of Illinois on Mormon thought. Um, And what they are trying to do is have a book um, on different Mormon thinkers, uh, one book per thinker, um, and to create sort of a more expansive view of what Mormon thought might be beyond like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So I asked uh, to do a book on Ina Kulbrith, um, who no one's ever heard of unless maybe a couple people in California have heard of her. Um, She was Joseph Smith's niece. um, After he died, uh, her mother, um, who actually I should say had been married to Joseph Smith briefly as part of a Leverite marriage, um, which is a marriage, there's a passage in the Bible that says if your brother dies and uh, he has not yet produced a male heir, then um, you should marry his widow uh, in order to produce an heir in his name. So her own husband died. After he died, she married Joseph Smith. Um, She had a couple of daughters at the time. Joseph Smith dies. She sort of thinks about what to do and ends up moving to California with her daughter, Ina, uh, who um, at the time is known as Ina Smith. Um, Her mother's maiden name was Colbrith. Ina moves to California. Uh, She becomes a fairly well-known local poet. Um, She gets married, uh, ends up getting divorced. Um, Her mother ends up leaving the church, and after sort of um, the um, Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, in which the Latter-day Saints as part of the violence of 19th century Utah, and the paranoia, and the suspicion, kill a group of uh, settlers from Arkansas and Missouri who were non-Mormon. And the aftermath of that, it was a fairly tumultuous time. Uh, And so Ina and her mother go uh, sort of incognito. She takes the name Ina Kulbreath, moves to San Francisco, um, and becomes a really well-known poet there. Uh, She sort of famously, May or may not, I personally lean on the may not side. I've um, had, had been a girlfriend of Mark Twain. She is um, a good friend of uh, early conservationists, uh, including John Muir. Uh, she becomes the first Poet Laureate of California. Um, and it's only sort of when she dies that it's revealed um, that she was actually the niece, and I guess stepdaughter technically, of Joseph Smith. Um, and so she was really famous in the 19th century um, and then completely got forgotten in the 20th and 21st century. Um, and so I'm going to write a short 40,000 word a book about her. Um, And then the second uh, project that I am working on um, is a history of um, the Latino community in Idaho. Uh, Most people don't realize um, Idaho has actually a fairly large Latino population. Um, It's about 20%, I think, statewide. And then there are some towns where it reaches like 50%. And I've always been interested in the way that race works in local communities um, and sort of the way that it works in in places where you're not in a big city, um, where people aren't expecting to find communities of color. And so I'm interested in certainly the early activism um, and politics um, of the Latino community in Idaho, um, probably from about the... 1920s, when there's a first immigration after the Mexican Revolution, uh, to the 1980s. Um, Cesar Chavez actually makes a trip to Idaho at various points to argue for the migrant workers who are working there. Um, there are early uh, lawsuits against the police for um, using violence against. Uh, ...Mexican Americans who are being arrested. Um, And I don't think that there's been sort of enough work on the way that race works in these rural communities where you do have significant populations of uh, migrant workers. Um, In Idaho's case, you also have a significant Native population. And I think it might add to the story of sort of race in America and how we think about race.
0: I think that sounds fantastic. And as, you know, someone myself who, who writes about a small community in the West, I'm a firm believer that we need more, <laughs> more, more histories of these kind of smaller places that often kind of get, get more uh, uh, swept under the rug or, or ignored too much. That sounds like a great project. Well, thank you. Amanda hendricks Komodo is an assistant professor of history at Montana State University and is the author of *Imperial Zion's: Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and the Pacific*, which just came out last year in 2022 with the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Amanda.
1: Oh, thank you. It was it was a lot of fun.